0: Emer McBride was born in Liverpool in 1976, moved to Ireland at age three, lived in Sligo, that's Yates country, and also male, and then you moved to London at age 17 to study drama. You turned to writing, and at age 27 wrote, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, and then you spent the next nine years trying to get it published. Welcome to The Bibliophile.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I want to drag you through those nine years again, if you don't mind. (laughs) Just because I think that's got to endear you to all the aspiring authors out there, their persistence.
1: Well, I think uh, people do seem to see it as a kind of inspirational story, but I I'm very cautious about that approach. I think, um, you know, it's not very advisable to spend nine years of your life trying to get something to happen and not really knowing whether it would or wouldn't happen. And that's, that's just not a kind of, of life that I would recommend for anyone.
0: How was your opinion of your own writing during that time? What did it fluctuate?
1: I don't know. I think I thought that the book was right. And I didn't know if it was good or bad, but I knew that it had to be the way that it was. And also that the way that it was, was causing it to be hard to get published. And I, I certainly had to have a moment where I... I had to decide whether I was a writer or not. And if that meant that I was a failed writer,
0: than not being a writer at all
1: yeah I had to kind of choose I had to choose that or choose the potential that that might be my future and and whether I should then continue to write or try and do something more productive with my life and and I and I realized that really writing was was it that's who I was and that there wasn't anything I could do better and there certainly wasn't anything that I liked more mm-hmm. and that it was a way of life that I couldn't live without. And so, you know, I started working on my second novel and, of course, you know, worried about whether I was writing another book for the drawer. But the act of writing sort of overcame my qualms.
0: That's the way you get joy, not happiness.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's important to, you know, like the Russian film director, Andrei Tarkovsky, when asked, you know, what you should do with your life said, you know, you have to work out what it is that you do and then you just keep doing it. And, and so that's, you know, writing was who I was. And, and so I worked on The Lesser Bohemians and I did not know whether anything would ever come of that either.
0: So the first book took you six months. The second book took you nine years?
1: Yes. It was a much longer process. I didn't write for three years after I finished a girl as a half thing at all hmm. and then I, I kind of had my moment of revelation and my husband and I had moved back to Ireland.
0: He must have loved that revelation because you weren't <laughs> going to earn any money, right?
1: That's right, I wasn't going to earn any money and not only that, we had owned um, half a house in a part-by-part rent scheme and when we moved back to Ireland we sold the house and the profit that we made basically subsidised my writing for a year or two so of course everyone was going crazy going oh my god you can't spend it this is your property ladder money and so we but we had always been very clear that life over lifestyle was the way that we wanted to live and he believed that i was talented and um, and you know was very very supportive of that choice to to start writing again so it took me a long time really to get the kind of the muscle back from Mm -hmm. having not written for such a long time um, and I think that was, it was a good year before I really felt that I was writing properly again um, and then it just took me a very long time to really dig down into what the book was about and that was, yeah, a very slow process.
0: And then you, uh, were, were they friends of yours that approached you about publishing the, your first novel or...?
1: No, we moved... My husband then got a job in Norwich and we moved Mm. back to the UK. And he was one day in the local indie bookshop and Mm -hmm. was talking to uh, the guy who owns it and who just very casually said, oh, what does your wife do? And so he told him and told him the long tale of failure and woe. And um, Henry, who owned the bookshop, said, well, that's sort of interesting because me and some of my friends are thinking of setting up a press. Do you think she let us read the book? And I, of course, said yes. And that's how the book came to be published.
0: It's the Galley Beggar Press. It was published in 2013, A 1,000 copies.
1: That's right, which we hoped we would sell over the course of a year, if we were lucky.
0: And I guess they had some kind of distribution network that put the book into some of the bigger Waterstones and places like that. Yeah,
1: I think, well, you know, it was only the second book that they had published and they were really doing it out of their front room, but they had made an agreement with a, a distributor, but I think everything in a very kind of small, low-key way because they had no money and, and none of us had any expectation of the book kind of doing what it did in the end. It's
0: difficult unquote.
1: Yeah I mean for me it was total joy to see it in print I mean and that was the height of my expectation.
0: As a writer your ideal is to actually have the book in a printed form that you can hold in your hand is that sort of what yeah, you were dreaming of?
1: It absolutely was because at that point after all of those years I had really given up hopes of ever seeing it published mm-hmm. and so just to see it published by a press, even though it was a tiny press, who at that point had, you know, made no reputation for themselves, that, to see that in in print, to see it in the bookshop was amazing. It was absolutely amazing.
0: More amazing than winning all the, because the book went on to win, and let's do this here, the Irish (laughs) Novel of the Year, the Desmond Elliott Prize, the Faber Memorial Prize, the Goldsmith Prize and the Bailey's—formerly the Orange Bailey's Woman's Prize.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> now Faber obviously saw this. Did it win it when it was with Faber or with the small little publishing house?
1: No, it first won um, the Goldsmith's Prize, and that was the uh, the autumn after it had come out in the, the previous summer and I was still with it was still with Beggar at that point but it was getting widely reviewed and it was starting to build up ahead of steam and then it was shortlisted for the folio prize and it really was kind of taking off and it was shortlisted for for the other prizes and at that point it started to get very hard for Beggar to be able to manage it
0: because they they, they did their thousand but then they started to produce another thousand yeah. and another thousand and then... Exactly. Well they had yeah. to
1: keep, keep printing and because of the way distribution works, of course they weren't going to see any money from any of that for months and months and months. Oh, and of course. of course they couldn't afford yeah. to keep laying out even though the need was there right. uh, for the books. Um, and so they did a deal with Faber, whereby Faber took on the mass market rights and they retained an interest in it but Faber then took on all the financial responsibility and they brought out their own edition. So did they
0: approach Faber or did Faber approach them?
1: I think Faber approached them. Faber had, I think, and they had a number of different approaches from from publishers and then they decided that Faber was the one they wanted to go with.
0: And I guess, and don't answer this if you don't want to, but the deal that you had with the, the initial publishing house Are they doing all, were they, they were doing all the negotiating for you?
1: Yeah, Gallybaker did all the negotiations for the, for For the the first, for the first book. For the first book, yeah, they only had the rights to the first book. I see, I hadn't sold uh, the second book and I didn't sell it for another few years after Mm -hmm. that.
0: Okay. So, how did Faber treat you?
1: Great. I found them all to be really kind and really supportive and I felt that it was really the right home that Gallybeg had really chosen the right place for it to go to that Mm. it kind of belonged
0: there a such a fantastic publishing house Yes,
1: and I was very, you know, I I felt very honoured really to, to join that list and they really did very well buy the book and really kind of also helped me because, you know, I was suddenly moving from living a completely quiet, private life, where no one cared whether I lived or died, to having a sort of public facing life, which I was completely unprepared for,
0: Yeah, and that, having to appear
1: work? in public and read yeah. and answer questions and do interviews, and was I found very hard to adjust to, and really freaked me out actually, and, and they kind of helped a lot with just kind of helping me negotiate how to do all of those things. Like how? Well, for one thing, they were sort of gatekeepers in terms of saying, you know, enough is enough. You're clearly exhausted. Don't do this. Don't do that. Or And they were able to assess what kind of things I should do and not kind of spend a lot of time and energy kind of traipsing around the, the country doing events that I didn't really need to do. Because, of course, I felt like I had to say yes to everything because yeah. I couldn't believe that anyone was asking me to do anything. <laughs> yeah, right. um, and I kind of got very exhausted very quickly because, you know, I also have a a small child and I was writing and it was just, it was very, very overwhelming. And they, they were great at sort of organizing me, which was really what I needed.
0: And at what stage did the Wiley agency come in?
1: The Wiley came on beforehand. That was around about the time I won the Goldsmiths Prize, I think. I had had an agent over the many years who had never sold the book. And I was approached by the Wiley agency and the, my agent was recommended by another writer who I really respect. And he said to me, <clears throat> you know, I gave her your book and I think you would really like her and I think she's very good. And and I was able to kind of, because obviously Wiley have a very ferocious reputation and that sure was kind did. of a... I was the a bit jackal, anxious about, right? yeah, I was a bit anxious about, about <laughs> again, being involved in something that I didn't really know very much about, but I also knew that with everything that was going on with the book, I needed someone who knew the business, yeah. and, who, and, yeah. and who I felt I could really trust to do right by the book. And mm-hmm. when, I, when I, I met her, Tracy, I was very impressed with her immediately, and felt that she was someone who I really wanted to work with, and, and she's been great, I have to say.
0: Speaking of Wiley, your name means Wiley, wife of a famous warrior.
1: <laughs> really? You knew that. No, well, Emer is, she was the the wife of Cúhollán, who was kind of the famous Irish Irish warrior, but she was, yeah, she was gifted with the seven gifts of womanhood or something, but I think she was quite a formidable character, which... I quite like associating myself with.
0: (laughs) The book itself, uh, A Girl is a Half-Born Thing. I'm just going to read out a few things here about it. It shows great insight, brutal detail of a young woman's relationship with her brother who has a brain tumor, an unconscious railing against a life that makes little sense. Thoughts, feelings and sexuality of a vulnerable, isolated protagonist, does that uh, adequately uh, describe it?
1: I suppose that kind of gives, a, gives you a bit of an overview of what it's about. I think obviously the way it's written is very important mm-hmm. to, to the book, more than, more than you know, it would be for a conventionally written novel.
0: Actually, I want you to find the difference between being I mean, called stream of consciousness. But did you call it stream of existence or a stream of pre-consciousness?
1: Yeah, I, I think stream of consciousness doesn't quite cover it. I think it is, I'm obviously influenced by that tradition, but I feel that I've tried to do my own thing with that. And, and it's not really about inhabiting the mind of someone, it is about inhabiting the whole life the physical life of that yeah, person the well. person Yeah, the body particularly.
0: Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, <laughs> how does yeah. language how does language allow me to experience my like you want virtual reality it seems.
1: Yeah, I th- I think so. I really, I really wanted to I wanted the reader to have a completely different kind of experience. I wanted them to feel as though what was happening in the book was happening inside them, inside their own bodies. So you want, you want you wanted them to feel
0: physically physically feel it. Yeah,
1: I wanted them to feel completely complicit in what was what was going on and to, to not be able to distance themselves from it, to not be able to m- make a judgment about mm. it until mm. uh, until it was done. Because I knew that the book, you know, the book was obviously, it's a painful book to read. It's, it's in some ways brutal, um, and it's filled with difficult emotion. And, and I really didn't want to kind of spare the reader that experience that the girl goes through. I wanted them to know what it was like to be someone else.
0: Because that's what you did. I mean, that's what being a writer is, is becoming someone else.
1: I don't know if it is. I suppose it's—it's it's certainly spending a lot of time thinking about being someone else in some ways, and well, of course, in other ways, it isn't. It's, you know, it's also part of yourself, just not necessarily literally.
0: Well, it's kind of a, a gift to be able to experience another life in addition to your own.
1: Yeah, I, I think sometimes it is a little like that, but I think that that can be the same for anyone who's who, for instance, who is interested in performance, there's an element of, of kind of, as the actor says in the, in the second book, of giving yourself a life for free, and I think that does apply to writing as well.
0: This is the quote that you had over your desk. Took a while to bring James Joyce in, but...
1: Uh, <laughs> we always get there in the end.
0: <laughs> One great part of every human existence is past in a state which cannot be rendered sensible by the use of a wide-awake language.
1: Cut-and-dry grammar.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to read my own writing Go here. ahead,
1: plot. <laughs> Go ahead,
0: plot, yeah. So he's trying to capture something that's uncapturable. Is that it?
1: Yeah. Um, or it is,
0: but you're striving, and that's what writers... That's why you are so fascinated by experimental fiction?
1: Reading that quote certainly pointed me in the direction where I wanted to go as a writer, that I really wanted to try and find a new narrative perspective. Because, I, you know, I do believe in making it new. I do believe you should be always pushing forward. What
0: has anyone done since Joyce...
1: Well and this is I mean and this was has always been my contention is that it was modernism was sort of prematurely closed down I mean there was kind of Beckett still going into the to the 80s yeah. um but he was alone in that in plowing that uh, furrow and I think it had just been decided that modernism that maybe with Finnegans Wake it, it had all gone a bit too far and that was enough now and where do you go from and, there yeah, yeah social realism was was the only way and and I disagreed with that.
0: And so your addition to the the effort is to try and convey this physical sense?
1: Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. That, that it's more, it's not Molly Bloom lying in bed thinking. You are not privy to mm-hmm. her personal thoughts. You are privy to to the girl's thoughts but but you also have access to her entire self. To, to how it feels to be inside her body and to witness how she witnesses life going on around her mm-hmm. um, and that is different to stream of consciousness mm-hmm.
0: and you do that by um, avoiding tangible information about time and place and leaving characters unnamed
1: well, in, in A Girl As I Half From Thing, I did, and that was about r- kind of removing the markers of identity. You know, when, when, a, when a writer sits down and they provide lots of facts, the reader immediately knows that the person that they are talking about is not them, it is the character, and the character is separate from them. Mm. And I didn't want the reader to feel separate from the character, so I removed all of those indicators, all those things that we are told make up ourselves and and hopefully it allows the reader to have a greater sense of identification with the character
0: so it's a difference between going to a movie and strapping on virtual reality yeah. nodes nodes on your <laughs> putting yeah, yeah. those I nodes mean, on your body and and getting in there and being that
1: yeah i mean i think the the writing is it's like a hyper reality. And it, it moves quickly, moves as quick the language moves as quickly as as the human mind moves. Or it's I'm trying to make it do that. Because mm. I want you know, I I want the reader to be to have to be very reactive.
0: Okay, so there's no grinding and no thrusting?
1: Well, this is when we're talking about lesser bohemians now, which is my second novel, um, which features large amount of sexual content, um, which I was really very interested to write about. Um, But what I realised very early on was how impoverished the sexual vocabulary is. Mm -hmm. How little, you know, maybe all the years of, of not allowing people to write about it explicitly has really taken its toll on the way that we, on the words that we use and the way that we think about sex. Um, and so my first sort of decision was that I would not allow myself to use any of the usual sexual vocabulary like grinding, pumping, thrusting yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: all of that 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 pretty pretty well it just had to go it just had to go because it doesn't it's so overused that it doesn't really mm. express anything specific anymore, mm. it's just this is how we write about sex
0: yeah which which brings up Uh, the idea that sex when you think about it is just kind of a very straightforward simple couple of bodies going at each other yeah and yet it assumes so much importance in a relationship if you do that with someone else yeah it's shattering yeah but it's such a simple little thing isn't it it's it's kind of yeah. a weird
1: Well, it's, it's weird because the, the actual activity itself is, is kind of unremarkable in terms of trying to describe physically what's happening. Mm. You know, there are variations, but by and large, it, we all, it's all kind of the same. But what makes it important to us is everything that goes around it, that everything go, that goes with it is how we experience it, how it changes us. How does it
0: change us then?
1: Because everything that we do in our life changes us. Okay.
0: But and, how does it specifically change us yeah, versus but why, going why have amber?
1: But I think the question is more, why do we assume that sex doesn't? I, You know, I'll, I'll be a different person when I walk out this door after doing this interview than I was when I came into this room. Mm-hmm.
0: So if I'm thought. having
1: sex with someone, why am I not different after that's over? And I think the, it's, this is the way that sex has been sort of hived off from the rest of life, so somehow it's different, Mm. and it's not, it's the same, and so I kind of realized with writing it that that the sex in the book is about character development, like everything in the book is about character development, Mm. but because sex is so underrepresented when it comes to character development in literature, it was very interesting for me to try and make that work, because you know, when two people have sex they both arrive for their own reasons, yeah. they go through the experience they want together. Pleasure. But sometimes they want pleasure. Sometimes they want revenge. Sometimes they want pain. Sometimes they want happiness. You know, people have sex for lots of different reasons. The main and reason both is people, pleasure. No, well, I disagree. I think it's, maybe that's a male it's female a, thing. I think it's a it's a component of it. But I think people often have sex for lots of conflicting reasons, and when those two people come together, there can be a lot of interesting things that happen in a room if they are not after the same thing at the same moment.
0: Well, the characters in The Lesser Bohemians, they start off as just casual sex. Mm -hmm. It turns, without either understanding, into a love affair that frightens them both in its intensity. So why does it frighten them? Because they're so vulnerable?
1: I think, yeah, they're both, you know, they're both arriving at this position of being together from different points. He's a lot older. He's very sexually experienced. She's young. This is her first sexual experience. Her first, she loses her virginity with him. And neither of them are expecting what happens to them to happen. You know, they arrive. She... You know, And this is what I'm just saying about the conflicting perspective. So he's he's picked her up at a bar, as far as he's concerned, and he's going to bring her back to his house, have sex with her, and then probably say, thanks very much, goodbye, and that's it. And she's, as far as she's concerned, she's kind of picked him up in the bar because she wants to lose her virginity, and she likes the look of him, and she thinks, okay, I'm going to get it done tonight. And afterwards, I'm going to get up and say, thanks very much, and leave, and I'm never going to see him again.
0: So they both have the same kind of idea. So there. they
1: have, so yeah, but, but both of these things also conflict, you know. And so they get into the room and and they both have different expectations of what's going to happen in there. Mm. And then what does happen is different again to, to what they think will happen. So he's very, when he finds out that this is what she's after, that she wants to lose her virginity, he's he suddenly softens up a lot with her. He suddenly becomes very aware of her vulnerability and becomes very keen to sort of take care of her in the process. But for her, she feels humiliated by having kind of revealed this vulnerability to this man. And so she sort of humiliates him. And then he ends up feeling completely humiliated by the experience and she feels humiliated. And neither of them get up and say, thanks very much, and that's it. You know, so in that scene that happens between them, you learn a lot about who these people are. And then, of course, then the next time they meet, they accidentally meet up again, and they they have sex again. But they're, they're then bringing the experience, the previous experience, into the new experience, and they're changed by that again. So they arrive with this experience, and they are they're changed by that and how they interact is changed by that and each time they meet they're changed again by each other and Mm -hmm. by what happens between them
0: have you read stendhal's on love i have not gotta read it if this is an interesting topic
1: Mm -hmm. okay
0: it's really really wonderful
1: yeah
0: he talks about this little branch in a Bavarian salt mine that it's called crystallization about mm. how when you fall for someone, you're sort of vulnerable and terrified that they're not they're going to leave you or they don't care as much
1: yeah.
0: about the situation as you do yeah, and yeah. Then, then you come back again together and yeah. it's wonderful and then you you know it's sort of a yeah, each yeah. time you add a crystal to the yeah, to yeah. the little branch yeah does that happen in the book?
1: Well, it does and it doesn't. They, they accumulate. They definitely accumulate a life together. Um, and it also, the relationship allows them also to deal with things that have happened in their pasts that they share. Um, it allows them to explore relationships that are absent in their lives. So I hope that it is a complex, it's a look at it, a very at a complex relationship. Between two people who are a bit broken and, and are trying not to be.
0: They're not in control of the vulnerability that they've unleashed.
1: Yeah, they fall in love. And for her, that's less problematic than it is for him. Because she's, you know, she's 18 and she's dying to fall in love. Mm-hmm. But he's in his late 30s and he really doesn't want that and has kind of decided that all of that aspect of life is not for him and yet finds himself in love despite his best efforts and that's you know that's difficult for him it creates a kind of a vulnerability the center of him that he doesn't particularly like
0: i don't think there's anything more powerful than uh, passionate love and the Concern in a life that you'll never be loved again, for example. That's what causes suicide.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure it does. I mean, um, that's not really something that I'm interested in in the book because he's really isn't keen on mm-hmm. being loved. Is someone who has decided that he wants to keep his distance from people, that he wants to, through a sense of shame about the way he's behaved in his life, and a sort of the desire to protect himself. So he's not afraid of never being loved again. He is in fact afraid of being loved.
0: Your actors training, creating characters from the inside out helped you in the writing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that was, that was the training that I brought with me to writing. I didn't have a a university education. I didn't have a creative writing background. But, but what, what I you had, did was
0: just as good.
1: Yeah, well, what I had was an interesting character. And, and I knew from my drama school days how to, how to build that. And so I, I really decided to use that as, as my, my way of, of working and, and just try and make language do it instead of the body instead. And that was kind of an interesting process, difficult fun.
0: Have we covered that or can you drill down on that a bit?
1: Um, yeah so really you know when you're an actor who comes from the method training school which is where I, I came from you are very focused on what's going on inside the character not and not just what they're thinking but how you create a whole person and all the little things that all the little components that build up to make a person who they are and behave in the way that they do in so that you, moment. You
0: reach back down to some childhood trauma, for example, and try I think and relate. You,
1: yeah, you can do, but you also you also think about how the body is affecting you in that moment. Like if you're in the midst of having a conversation with someone and you have a blinding headache, that is going to influence how the conversation will proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you've got a really itchy foot or you're dying to go to the toilet. All of those things, you know, that, that influences how you behave in the moment and, and then the person will, will also be reacting to that and then you'll be reacting to their reaction. And so it's about trying to build up a very complete picture, not just, you know, what they want out of this scene or what their past relationship with this person is like, but all of those things, all at once.
0: And that's what you did with language.
1: And so, yeah, it was really trying to make language perform that task instead. And, of course, to do that, you have to make language work in a different way. So grammar was different, and, you know, tenses were different, and I invented words, and, you know... Like Shakespeare. Well, why not? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, but that was... I mean, the important thing for me about reading Ulysses is that feeling that you, are, you can do whatever you want. You, there is no rule to how you write a book. Yeah. If you can pull it off, you can do whatever you like.
0: By reading that book, you felt, a, what, a real sense of freedom?
1: Yeah, I think reading Ulysses, I just, it just challenged, it confounded everything that I thought literature had to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kind of opened up a world. And it was very much that feeling of you, you can do what you like.
0: You don't have to pay attention to how things are spelt or grammatical
1: uh, No, I mean, it's not about paying attention. Of course, everything that I've written, it's very... Nothing's there by accident. It is a careful choice, I have thought, very long and hard about how to make it that way. And I've made decisions. None of it is just words thrown on a page. But, uh, you know, I didn't know that I could make different kinds of decisions Mm. until I read Ulysses.
0: Sounds, sounds a bit like poetry.
1: I think in some ways it is. I've always felt very envious of the way readers bring a different kind of attention to poetry. Yeah. Well, that's um, what I when
0: I felt like I had to read it like poetry. I had to give, you know, it, give it that space, that freedom, yeah. that when license. You,
1: when you read poetry, you, you expect to do some work. And somewhere along the line, the idea was kind of brought to the fore that with prose you're not allowed to ask the reader to do any work and I just disagree with that Mm -hmm. and I think people do feel do like to be engaged in different ways you know fine they don't want to read a book like A Girl is a Half One Thing or The Lesser Bohemians every day but maybe once a year, twice Mm -hmm. a year they Mm -hmm. want to read a book in which they have to invest a bit more of themselves
0: and before they read it they need to understand that they need to put themselves in the right frame of mind.
1: I don't know if that's true. I mean I I think certainly people often start my books and they they're a bit unsure and it takes a while. Mm -hmm. It takes a few pages for them to really to get it but Mm -hmm. usually if they stick with it they find it clicks and then it stops becoming an issue. They stop having to think about it. They can accept the logic or the brain accepts the logic and, and then just goes forward. That's
0: Shakespeare for me again. It usually takes me the first act to kind of get comfortable, and then yeah. I get caught up in it.
1: Yeah, I think you know anything that isn't, that isn't kind of contemporary speech, mm-hmm. it takes a while for the ear to attune itself, yeah. but the ear does attune itself, and it's really about readers allowing, allowing their ear, giving it a moment to get there.
0: Another quote of yours is, art at its best, like sex at its best, is an invitation into God knows where. This is why they get along so well. So where is where is God knows where?
1: Well, it's a phrase which means nobody knows where, right? That's right. <laughs> so it's, it's about a sense of adventure, isn't it? It's about being open to open, mm-hmm. generally, to experience. Um, and that's what good art is and it's definitely what good sex is. How's that again? Well, I think if you arrive in your bedroom and you just have a very particular way of how things are supposed to go, you can really miss out.
0: Yeah. I I interviewed Adam Gopnik, the critic for The New Yorker, last year. He made a joke about... uh, married couples who've been married for quite a while and sex is like a reenactment of the civil war. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure where he went, where the punchline was. You know the outcome though, but...
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So you don't know the outcome? You, you go in with what? You I go, think you, like... you,
1: you, you go in and you are open to the experience and... And you, you can allow yourself to be to experience things in different ways. I think when you go to an art gallery, you don't go and look at a picture and think, I'm, I'm going to go and look at this picture, and I already know how I'm going to feel about it. Why would you go to the art gallery if that's, how you feel? You know, if that, if that's your approach? You go and you look, and you, you allow whatever occurs in that moment to affect you.
0: Yeah, you want something to wash over you or it's some thought to come to you that, that you haven't had
1: before. Is that it? Yeah, but you know, if it's if it's sex rather than art, it's about making a connection with another person. And and if you go if you if you climb into bed, deciding right, this and this and this is going to happen, and this is going to be the outcome, you're not really involving yourself with the other person, or you not being open to the experience, to the moment.
0: Uh, sounds a bit airy fairy to me.
1: Well, not to me.
0: Going in with an open mind that you're going to experience something new or you want to experience something in another world, (laughs) orgasmic. That's the way you should approach it.
1: I mean, I'm not particularly interested in telling people what they should do. That is what I'm interested in. Everyone should do whatever they want themselves. Yes, of
0: course. You obviously get enjoyment and satisfaction using this approach. I just, I'm not sure I understand it, though.
1: I don't know what more I can say to explain it, I think, you know, writing, it's very important to be open.
0: hmm <laughs> to whatever comes in, yeah. comes in.
1: And I think that is a great principle for life in general.
0: I couldn't agree with you more.
1: And I don't know how I can explain it further than that.
0: I understand mm-hmm. that perfectly, I'm just, it's the sex that I'm, I'm just...
1: Uh, well, it's not my job to educate you about sex. <laughs>
0: That's what I was hoping for. Sex uh, is a way to speak to each other about what you can't verbalize.
1: Yeah, well obviously it's primarily a physical act.
0: But when it's really great, it's it's like it really is a way to express your love, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it can be, yeah. But uh, I think people also express a range of emotions through that experience. Yeah, some people cry. Yeah, but I think also, you know, it's, it's not always about being in love, and, and, I, and I really wanted to write about that, that sex, people use sex for lots of reasons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and which I, I think is something that's not written about interestingly, and I wanted to try and do that.
0: Well, you've succeeded.
1: Well, thank you very much.
0: Just finally, what are you working on now?
1: I, um, I've just uh, finished a new novel, and I, um... Got a name? Uh, not that I can say, <laughs> just yet. Okay. Um, I've got, yeah, I've got a few things on the go, to be honest, but I can't really say too much about those things at this time.
0: Okay. And this with Faber?
1: Uh, yes, it will be Faber. Okay great. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you.